Heavenly Father, I do want to thank you so much for the privilege we have of being here at camp meeting. I want to thank you for a beautiful day, Lord, and the opportunity we have of coming together and fellowshipping with one another and hearing your word, Lord. I pray that it would be something that would stir our hearts and minds and, and uh, Lord, work in us the character of Christ that we may be the people you've called us to be at the end of time. We pray, Lord, now that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to respond, for I ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, so much to say. Uh, before I get into the presentation itself, I wanted to share something here that I thought went very well with what my brother shared yesterday. Yeah, I came across this in Desire of Ages recently. You know, when you teach classes, you, 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 the, if I taught more, well, I teach quite a bit, you learn not to pass the papers out, you know, until you've said what you need to because then everybody's reading the paper or... So I'm going to preface the statement, then I'm going to show it to you. I read this in Desire of Ages, and you know, the Bible calls the Holy Spirit the Comforter. And there's a lot of ways the Holy Spirit brings comfort. But I read this particular statement, and I'd read it before, but it just really impacted me. And I want you to get something out of this from Desire of Ages on the Holy Spirit being called the Comforter. Page 671 says, the Comforter is called the Spirit of Truth. His work is to define and what? Maintain the truth. He first dwells in the heart as the spirit of truth, and thus, in this way, he becomes the comforter. There is comfort and peace in the truth, but no real peace or comfort can be found in falsehood. Now, I shared that the other day without sharing the statement. When, when, when we're in a world and people say, oh, you can't know what truth is, and there's no, there's no absolute truth, I mean, listen, when I go to the bank, I want to know that there is an absolute truth when it comes to addition, right? I deposited $100 last week, I'm depositing $100 this week, that should be $200. Well, you know, there's no absolute truth, that might be $200 to you, but to us it's $2750. Um, so, you know, there's, and I, I use that example, but there's comfort and certainty in knowing that there are things you can count on, and that's what she's saying. And the Holy Spirit is, he brings us truth. The way he comforts is not some feeling. It's with the truth, the certainty of truth. And that's why, again, we're doing this seminar, because there is certainty in the Adventist message. There is comfort and peace in the truth, but no real peace or comfort can be found in falsehood. It is through false theories and traditions that Satan gains his power over the mind. Now, don't miss this. This is why the devil wants to promote error. By directing men to false standards, he what? He misshapes the character. You've heard the principle in Scripture, by beholding we become changed. That's whatever we behold. Whatever I behold. If I want to behold truth, I'm going to be changed to be more like truth. If I want to behold error, I'm going to be changed like error, and the devil knows it. And so it's not just like, hey, I want to confuse him and have some fun. He has a goal, and the goal is to shape the character in a different way. By directing men to false standards, he misshapes the character through the scriptures. The Holy Spirit speaks to the mind and impresses truth upon the heart. Thus, he exposes error and expels it from the soul. It is by the spirit of truth working through the word of God that Christ subdues his chosen people to himself. Yeah, praise the Lord indeed. 
Now, I want to note two great dangers before I get into this. This is something that has been hitting me lately with Seventh-day Adventists. Two great dangers, I think, exist. There's probably more, but these two come to my mind. Number one, for some reason, it doesn't seem that we think we're susceptible to deception. I'm going to tell you that there are so many flavors of truth in the Adventist church today. And somebody, I, I preached something yesterday, and I don't know what to say about it. I, honestly, it is so deep, I don't know what to say about it anymore. I got off the platform and somebody came up and said, yeah, I'm reading this book and it's been really an encouragement to me. And he so cited some very well-known Adventist authors from times past. Uh, well, <laughs> some, there were some Adventist authors in the book. And then in the book that he was referring to, there's a guy named E. Stanley Jones. Now, E. Stanley Jones, I know it was unbeknownst to him and probably to most of you. Who's ever heard the name E. Stanley Jones here? You go into Elder Stamen's seminar, maybe you've heard it. E. Stanley Jones was a, I don't even know if I want to call him a Christian. His, he was a Christian who was trying to reach Hindus. And in working with the Hindus, he had come to the mindset that there are certain things that as Christians we can teach Hindus about Christ, but there are certain things that we don't know that Hindus teach us about Christ. And it was a blending, and he was in the 50s, Christian denominations, including this one, the Seventh-day Adventist one, in light of some of the stuff I shared the other day, because of our desire for assurance of salvation, as my brother Jim talked about yesterday, we did, this, he was a very inspirational speaker, and so we're bringing in East Alien Jones. He had, so this guy gets on, I get off the platform, and say, yeah, I'm reading this powerful book, and you know, stuff in articles by this guy, and he's coming from East Alien Jones and everything else. I just don't know what to say. Uh, without, I mean, if I were to list you off certain authors, I think... Even in this room, you'd be like, oh, he's one of those. I'm not going to go back to that because it's a favorite author of yours. My point is this. We are, we are as susceptible to deception. What's deception? The deception is when you think you're right and you're not right and you're so sure you're right. And what's the only way to get around deception? It's not my favorite author in the ABC. It's not my favorite preacher. It's scripture. And it's the spirit of prophecy, Seventh-day Adventists. And, uh, oh, there's more I can say on that. And then, we're not planning on living in heaven. We're talking yesterday about, you know, we get into, as Seventh-day Adventists, and the question was asked yesterday, you know, we talk about health, and we talk about vegetarianism. I believe, currently, it's, what, it's around 44% of Seventh-day Adventists are vegetarian. I mean, are you kidding me? We, we, we had light from God that said that cancer is majorly caused more than anything else by media. I could go through council after council. Now, the Bible doesn't condemn it, but where are you planning on spending eternity? I mean, it's like, well, you know, I have this problem and I have that, and I know I, you know, I, don't, I, know I shouldn't watch this, and I shouldn't watch that, and I shouldn't eat this, and I shouldn't do that, but, what do you mean, but? I'm going to tell you that you're not going to, I remember doing an evangelistic meeting, and a guy comes up to me in the meeting, and he says, he, said, he, was a not, he was an attendee, he was not an Adventist. And he said, boy, I'm sure looking forward to going to heaven. My mom is up there, she made the best fried chicken, and I can just see it now. There's going to be lines and lines of people waiting to eat her fried chicken in heaven. And I thought, I didn't tell him anything, okay? I was tactful, but I'm just, for a Seventh-day Adventist, folks, they're not going to be killing chickens in heaven or anything else. You're not going to be watching Netflix in heaven. I'm... And I'm not saying you can't watch Netflix and that's maybe something good here or there, but the point is we've got to be preparing to leave this earth. 
And the Lord is working on that preparation. That's really what the Advent movement is about. I want to talk about the future of Adventism today, Adventist identity. Who are we? We're losing it. We're going to have another history lesson today. But we are to a point in so many places that even for Seventh-day Adventists, we're like, you know, what does it matter if you're an Adventist or if you're a Baptist or a Presbyterian or non-denominational? We have a huge problem with the attendance of our Seventh-day Adventist schools. One of the primary reasons is because Seventh-day Adventist people don't, hey, why am I paying an extra money to put my kid in an Adventist school when it really doesn't matter? I can send them to the local Christian school or the public school. It doesn't matter. Adventism doesn't matter anymore. This distinctiveness doesn't matter anymore. Or does it? Or does it? I shared with you from this statement the other day from this article uh, written in Christianity Today in 1990 by Kenneth Samples, a protege of uh, Dr. Uh, Walter Martin. And I want to share with you a statement I didn't the other day in this article. He says something interesting. He says this. Ironically, now he's talking about in the 1990s and the fallout of the Ford crisis and everything else. He says, ironically, the present confusion in Adventism is in direct contrast to the confidence of Adventism's pioneers. Now, let me just interject something there. This is what I hear today. This is what I hear all the time. Oh, back in the past, we were always uncertain of our salvation. And oh, it was terrible being an Adventist. It was so hard and everything was so critical. Somebody, the outsiders, are saying Adventists seem to be pretty much on the same page. But now that they all have this freedom in Jesus through the Ford Christ and everything else, they don't know what they are, who they are, and where they're going. It's in direct contrast to the common... Again, this guy's not a Seventh-day Adventist. He's on the outside looking in. What he sees in the Adventist church here is in direct contrast to the confidence of Adventists and pioneers who knew exactly who they were. They were God's remnant church, a special people with a special message for a special time. Well, how'd they get there? How'd they get there? I want you to note some statements here, and we're going to build on this today. We're going to look at, you know, primarily, primarily what is it that makes us Seventh-day Adventists? It's our prophetic message. It's our prophetic message. And the gospel is tied to the prophetic message. We already saw that in Revelation 14. We're going to look at it again. I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, right? That's a prophetic picture, having the everlasting gospel. And then he preaches about the judgment hour and the fall of Babylon and the mark of the beast in the context of the everlasting gospel. You can't separate them. Christ put them together there in Revelation. Notice what it says here. The scripture, which above all others had been both the foundation and the central pillar of the Advent faith. Now, this isn't Adventist. This is, this is the movement that we were birthed from, the great Advent movement. The foundation and the central pillar of the Advent faith was the declaration unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. One of our ministers in this conference had shared this at one of our pastor's meetings. He was taking online classes with one of our um, universities, religion classes, theology, theology, Adventist theology classes. So he's watching online, and then in the classroom you have students. And the teacher asks the question of the students about William Miller and who knew who he was, and zero of the theology students knew. And these are going to be the people preaching to you. And you ask a Seventh-day Adventist today in so many places what 1844 is about, and it really isn't significant. And I've got a video, time permitting, I would have showed you from Desmond Ford that he made just this last year 
where he tells in the video, look, this whole investigative judgment thing, he says, I know scholar after scholar, friends in the Adventist church, and they're like, Des, we don't teach the investigative judgment anymore. We're past that. And you could say, well, he's making it up, except for you tell me where it's being taught. And listen, with so much talk about the, 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 the atonement finished at the cross, why would we talk about some event that came after that? I'm telling you, it's just confusion up to here. But we're told that this was a foundation pillar text for us, Daniel 8, 14. We're going to look at that today. Now, notice this statement from early writings. In early writings 63, Ellen White has a section in there. I wish I could share with you the whole thing. But the section is called The Messengers. And in it, God revealed to her the messengers of God's messengers in the last days and what their message would be. And this is what she's sharing. She says, there are many precious truths contained in the word of God, but it is what? Present truth. It's using a biblical term that the flock needs now. I have seen, and she's going to tell us what that is. I have seen the danger of the messengers running off from the important points of present truth to dwell upon subjects that are not calculated to unite the flock and sanctify the soul. Now, we as Seventh-day Adventists spending a whole lot of time and energy proclaiming stuff that is not uniting us but dividing us. Satan will here take every possible advantage to injure the cause. But, now here it is, here's the present truth, here's where we should be focusing. But such subjects as the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus are perfectly calculated to explain the past Advent movement and show what our present position is, establish the faith of the doubting, give certainty to the glorious future. What's the, what are those two things talking about? Okay, but what, is it, what does it mean when it says establish faith? What does it mean when it says give certainty? That's talking about assurance, right? That's talking about confidence. It's talking about hope. But people tell me today, oh, no, you can't preach the sanctuary. That takes away assurance. That's not what the prophet of the Lord says. It says that this subject presented the right way, and we're going to talk about that, establishes the faith of the doubting, gives certainty the glorious future. These, she says, I have what? What is frequently seen? Uh, what does that mean? What frequently? More than once. <laughs> Many times. These I have frequently seen were the principal subjects on which the messengers should dwell. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong idea there. You read that and say, sanctuary, I mean, how many times can you do the time prophecy uh, that leads you to the 2300 days? That's, that's not what she's talking about there. She said, first of all, the sanctuary, and she's not talking about giving sanctuary seminars everywhere. And I may offend somebody in saying that, because I know people, oh, we just need to go back she says the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days. When you connect the sanctuary with the 2300 days, it does something. It points us to a time prophecy that points to the future, points to something that happens in our day, and we're going to see this in a minute. Now she says this, these subjects, oh, the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, this was among her description there, present truth. And then she said the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Where do we find that language? Revelation what? Revelation 14, okay? Don't miss that. This is going to be important in a minute. Well, it's important now, but you know what I mean. <laughs> now, she says these are the principal subjects on which the messengers should dwell. Now, if, if, if this is a principal subject, 
then what does that mean? That means you really don't have a lot of time to dwell on other stuff. This becomes your focal point. Don't miss that. Now notice this statement, and you've probably read this before or heard it before. Testimonies 9, page 19 says, In a special sense, Seventh-day Adventists have been set in the world as watchmen and light bearers. To them has been entrusted the what? The last warning for a perishing world. On them is shining wonderful light from the word of God. They have been given a work of the most solemn import, the proclamation of the what? The first, second, and third angel's messages. Now, don't miss this. There is no other work of so great importance there to allow what? Nothing else to absorb their attention. Now, do the math with me. If the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, is the principal subject I'm to dwell on, and yet at the same time I'm supposed to focus on the three angels' messages and let nothing else absorb my attention. I can't do both unless what? Unless they're the same message. Where's the, where's, what's the first angel's message? Fear God and give glory to him what? The hour of his judgment. Where, how do I know, when did it come? Yeah, when did it come? How do I know when the hour of judgment came? i got to go to Daniel 8.14. So when she's saying the commandments of God and the faith, that's why she ties them together. When she says the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, that points us to the judgment hour message in the three angels that end with, here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And that, that is the sum of who we are, those three angels' messages. Now, I want to try to flesh out some of the significance, the practical significance of that for us. I would like for you to turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 8. Daniel 8 is one of the chapters we spend probably the least amount of time in when we study prophecy, but it is one of the most important chapters. Now, I mean, you know, I, we, we go to Daniel 8, 13 and 14, and we have a seminar, and I'll be honest with you folks, I really don't like in an evangelistic series, your typical series, doing a sermon on the investigative judgment. That's going to sound really heretical after what I just shared. But one of the reasons is because we plow through it so fast, nobody gets it. There's a lot of substance to it. And, 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 and because we're not studying, yeah, we, real quick, let's run over here. And then 8, 13, and 14, and let's do that. And we're, here's the time chart. And then the eyes roll back in the head, and the people are lost. It's like calculus, and it's gone. Like Nebuchadnezzar, the thing is gone from me. There's a lot in Daniel 8 we can't get into normally, so I want to get into it now. Daniel chapter 8. Now, in Daniel 8, you know Daniel parallels. Daniel chapter 2, you have the four world kingdoms, Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And then Daniel 7 builds up on the same kingdoms. Then Daniel 8 builds on the same kingdoms, only Babylon is fading off the scene, and so it begins in the vision with a ram, and then a goat, and then a little horn. And the Bible even tells us, if you're there in Daniel 8, before we start looking at what I want to look at, verse uh, 20, Daniel 8, verse 20 says, The ram which you saw, having two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn is between his eyes, the first king. So right here you've got the same parallel. Medo-Persia, Greece, and then what do you think follows? Well, I mean, if you're doing the study of prophecy, you know Rome comes next. Rome's the next kingdom. I say that because there are the, the evangelical world will, when you come to Daniel 8, they'll interject some uh, Seleucid king named Antiochus. 
which if I had time, I would show you how foolish that is. But right now, I want to just get this point across this morning. So in Daniel 8, I want you to look at verse 9. We've gone past the ram, past the goat. It says when the goat, in fact, in verse 8, says the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. And one of them came, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Now these, these are the beasts, the ram and the goat are representing kingdoms, Medo-Persia. And then here comes another kingdom, and it would follow this, the kingdom of Rome, and the direction that it says it grows fits the historical growth of Rome as they expanded their empire. So it's not a big, I mean, it's very easy to follow through. Now, so you've got Babylon, we've got Medo-Persia, I'm sorry, Babylon is, is, doesn't come in this vision. Belshazzar, the king, Babylon's there. Medo-Persia, Greece, and then in verse 9, you have this little horn begins to grow. Verse 10, rather. Verse 9 and 10. It says, out of one of them became a little, uh, came a little horn. Sorry, I'm, I'm going a little fast. Let me calm down for a minute. Yeah. Does the little horn come out of one of those other horns, or does it come from the, uh, the wind? John, I knew you'd ask that question. Somebody would ask that question. Um, I wasn't going to make a big deal about that for sake of time, but from a linguistic standpoint, reading the Hebrew, because of the genders of the words, it can't come out of the horns. It has to come out of the wind. But that's another day. Okay, That's next year's seminar. It makes a difference with Antiochus. And you're tempting me. To go into the whole Antiochus thing. I'm so, sorry. so we're going to not do that. So in verse 9 again, out of one of them, to be out of the one of the winds, if you were reading it in the Hebrew, came a little horn which grew. And it really doesn't matter. It's evident who the little horn is when you look at it. I mean, the ram was great. The goat was exceedingly great. Uh, the goat was very great. And now the little horn's exceedingly great. Um, and we've got our parallel empires. Now, it says that this little horn grew toward, grew toward the south, toward the east, the, the glorious land. This is the empire of Rome. Verse 10, it says, notice what it says here, and I'm reading in the New King James Version. It says it grew up, if you have the New King James. Now, the King James doesn't have up, but you get the same idea. And it grew up to the host of heaven. So prior to verse 10, how is it growing? South, east, glorious land. Which way is it growing? Horizontally, right? It's growing out like this. But then you come to verse 10, and this earthly power says it starts to grow up. Now, we're no, we know we're talking about Rome. So when could it be said that Rome started to grow up toward the host of heaven? You've got the rise of the papacy. You've got the rise of the papacy, and you're going to see it as we... And look, we're not just making this up. We didn't make it up over cornflakes. You've got, you've got Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 that help us out with that as a parallel, and more could be said, but... So it grows up toward the host of heaven. So what we're seeing is the development of the papacy. And in Daniel 8, you have some of the clearest picture of the coming work. Now keep in mind, the papacy isn't around yet. This is 600, 500 something B.C. This is yet to come. But God is predicting a power to come, and it tells in very clear description what you can expect to see when that power shows up on the scene. Now we know that power to be Rome, so we can go back and kind of verify but it says that he grows up toward the host of heaven and casts down some of the hosts of some of the stars to the ground and tramples them. 
he even exalted himself as high as the what? The prince of the host. Now, if you get on further in the, trans in the interpretation of the angel, he calls him the prince of princes, referring to Christ. says that this little horn, Rome, would exalt himself even to the place of Christ. You know that the word antichrist, antichrist only appears in the letters of John, 1st and 2nd John. And the word literally means in place of Christ. Now, in our language, anti is always just against and opposed to, which it has that connotation in the Greek, but we miss that part where it's in the place of. And this is exactly what the prophecy says. He would put himself in the place of Christ. Now, notice how he does it. He exalts himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his, capital H, sanctuary, was cast down. The, who's the he? The his, Christ, the prince of the host, right? Yes. Now this is reaching beyond, so we're, we're just from a prophetic timeline, we've gone through the kingdom, the empire of Rome, and now we're going to the little horn growing up, so that's papal Rome. Where was the earthly temple in the days of papal Rome? I mean, even before the breakup of Rome in 70 A.D., the earthly temple was destroyed. Incidentally, the earthly temple was never the temple of Christ, as it were, because the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 8, if he were on earth, he couldn't be a priest. He couldn't be a priest in the earthly temple because he was of the tribe of Judah, not of Levi. So it's the place of his sanctuary would not be an earthly sanctuary. It's going to have to be the heavenly sanctuary. And it says that it's going to cast down the place of his sanctuary and take away the daily. Now, the daily sacrifices, the word sacrifices is supplied. And listen, there's, there's detail in this stuff that we're not going into, but it's not essential to get into all the details. Some of you who have studied more, you're like, hey, let's get into the detail. No, we're not going to do it today. But here's the point. The word that, the word, when you see the word italicized, it means it's supplied by the translators. The word is daily. In the Hebrew, it's the word tamid. And tamid is a Hebrew word that's used throughout the Old Testament scriptures when it's <clears throat> speaking of the work in the temple of the priests. The continual, the word literally means continual, and it's continual work of the priest that goes on in the temple. And what the Bible's telling us, what Daniel's telling us is, when this little horn comes, somehow he's going to stand up in the place of Christ and he's going to try to take over the work of the priest in the temple. Well, what did the priest do in the temple? When, if you were living in the days of ancient Israel and you came to the temple, what are you looking for? Forgiveness of sins. Can we think of anything in, in papal Rome's history where it's said it's going to take care of the forgiveness of sins? I mean, listen, this is astounding. This has never even happened yet. It's prophecy, but God's foretelling that there's going to, power, that there's going to come a power that's going to stand up and try to put itself in the place of Christ cast down the place of his sanctuary and get people to look to this power for forgiveness of sins instead of Christ for forgiveness of sins. Now listen, folks. How many of your Christian brothers and sisters from other faiths think at all or talk at all about the heavenly sanctuary? Why? Because the place of his sanctuary has been cast down and an imposter truth has been put in his place. That's, that's what's being foretold. Is that a big deal? Oh, prophecy is not a big deal today as long as we believe in Jesus. Well, you better watch which Jesus you're believing in. Because the Paul says that there are, there's a danger of believing in another Jesus. But the Bible doesn't teach. It says that this power would cast down the place of his sanctuary. And now look at verse 12. It says, because of transgression, 
an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast what to the ground? He cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Now watch this. We're going to just jump over, and again, I know there's more that we could look at, but for sake of time, when Daniel goes and asks the interpretation and Gabriel interprets it, I want you to notice what he says in um, verse 25. It says, through his cunning, he shall cause what? Deceit to prosper. King James says craft, same idea. Okay, so this little horn, now put the two together. This is what he's going to do. He's going to cast truth to the ground, and then he's going to cause deceit to prosper. What's another word for deceit? Lies. Okay? He's going to cause lies to prosper. How do you make a lie prosper? Okay, you can say it all you want. Look, you can tell me a lie all you want. Tell me the sky is orange all you want. Well, sometimes it is. Let me pick another color. But you can tell me all you want. Sorry, I'm not going to believe it. So now how is it going to prosper? It's got to be believed as truth. Okay? It's not how many times you tell the lie. The only way a lie can prosper is if you believe the lie is true. And what the Bible says is that the church of Rome, the empire of Rome, would give rise to the church of Rome, that the church of Rome would put itself up in the place of Christ, pull Christ's ministry, his heavenly sanctuary ministry, out of the way. So when Jesus ascended to heaven and he directed his disciples' eyes upward, this church would bring the eyes downward, and instead of looking to a heavenly high priest, oh, guess what we have now? We have earthly priests. Oh, there's an altar. No, there's altars, altars down here. Earthly priests, earthly altars, earthly incense, earthly intercession. You understand what I'm saying? The place of his sanctuary was cast down, brought back down to the earth when people should have been looking to Christ in heaven. And then he would take the truth, the truth of God's word, and cast it down, and in the place of it, he would put lies and make the people believe the lies were the truth, and the truth was the lie. Now, we know a little bit of church history. What are some of the lies that came through the Dark Ages when people had the Bibles taken out of their hands and they were taught men's traditions and Greek philosophy and everything else? What do we have? Where did we get the idea that Sunday was sacred? Not from Scripture. Where did we get the idea that hell burns forever? Not from Scripture. Where did we get the idea that, the that, that man is made up of soul and, bo and body and when body dies, the spirit soul floats off somewhere and, and lives on in heaven or in hell? Not from Scripture, right? So, so this, is, this is exactly and precisely what the Bible is foretelling is going to happen. And we live in the aftermath, and we can look back and say, it just, everything that Daniel is saying is happening here has happened. He cast truth down to the ground, and then masses of people are convinced that all of these errors I just shared and so many more are the truth. And when you try to say, well, no, look, the Bible says the seventh day is the Sabbath, they say that's error. Because they've accepted error as truth. See, when you accept error as truth, truth, truth is your foundation. Truth is your baseline for testing everything else. And when what I accept as truth is wrong, then I'm by nature going to reject everything that's right because my truth says it's wrong. That's what Jesus meant when he said um, the, the, lamp, the, uh, the lamp of the body is the eye, and when your eye is full of light, 
When your eye is good, your body's full of light. When your eye is bad or evil, your, your body's full of darkness. Then he said, "How uh, if, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great the darkness. When what you accept as truth is really error, then you're open game for any error. You've got nothing to judge, judge truth by anymore. So this is what the devil's working on, and going back to that statement we looked at, because he's trying to make sure that the character of Christ does not become our character. He knows what the stakes are. Yes, sir? Yeah, uh, Matthew 6, 22 and 23. The, the old computer doesn't work as well sometimes as it used to. And I, Okay, so this is just describing for us in more detail than we got back in Daniel 7, the work of the coming papacy. Okay? Now, it's in this context, brothers and sisters, that we come to verse 13. Verse 13 says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of the host both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. Now, just a simpler way of saying that, because we didn't read through the whole passage, is what time period does this vision encompass? How long is this going to go on? Or maybe even more straightforwardly, how long is the little horn going to get away with this? That's really what's being asked. How long? Right? Daniel is watching. Like, here's a power that stands up against God, stands in the place of Christ, blocks Christ from the view of the people, takes the truth of God and casts it to the ground, and the question, in fact, Daniel's not even asking the question. I think he's too dumbfounded. An angel's asking the question to make sure the right question gets answered. How long is this going to go on? And that is the question that's answered in verse 14 when the angel says, unto 2,000. Let me rephrase that. Well, I'm just going to say when the answer comes. I'll leave it at that because there's more you can say. Unto 2,300 days, or in the New King James, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, I want to flesh that out a little bit more in a minute. I'm going to give you a quick history lesson. Let me see where we are. Timelines. Okay. 70-week prophecy. How many of you have seen the 70-week prophecy? We're not going through the 70-week prophecy right now. Okay. Um, I'll tell you something that would do you well. I'm going to give you two resources. Well, one resource and one assignment. I know a lot of Seventh-day Adventists who struggle with the 2300 days. And they hear a presentation, and it's all these figures, and like I said, the eyes roll back in the head. You need to work this out for yourself. A friend of mine, Pastor Scott Moore, he was teaching a class. He had a young man coming uh, who was, was struggling with this. And he wanted him to teach it. And after he got to a certain point, he's trying to explain. Pastor Scott said, you know what, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to sit down, and you're going to do it for me. And you're going to do it on the board, and I'm going to sit down and watch it. What? He said, yeah, I'm going to sit here, and you get up there. Uh, 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 he didn't give him an excuse, so he got up, and it was as he started working through and wrestling through it, something clicked, and he's like, I see it, I get it. We've got to apply ourselves a little bit to this. And there's a book that will be of immense help to you. It's a little book by Clifford Goldstein called 1844 Made Simple. One of the hands-down best books. It's on my top ten list books in Adventism. It's a little book, it's easy to read, and you can follow through very clearly and that book is, is worth its weight in gold. Worth more than its weight, because it's not a real big book, it's a small book. <clears throat> okay, so now listen. The 70-week prophecy was by and large, at least when our pioneers 
started this movement, by and large, understood the same way by most of Christians. Some people came to a date different than 34 AD. Some people were 33 AD, or the cross was 33 AD, or something else. But they all understood it to refer to the ministry of the Messiah, the death of the Messiah, and the end of the probation period for the Jewish nation. Now today, we've got futurism, and then the last week is the seven years of tribulation, all that. But that wasn't how it was when our pioneers started up this movement. And most Christians were united with the 70 weeks and how they outlined or foretold the coming ministry of Christ. But here was the problem. When you come to Daniel 8.14 and it says unto 2,300 days, 2,300 days from what? From where? I mean, I can count 2,300, but where do I count it from? And somebody says chapter 9, but I want to tell you something. Nobody in the Christian world got it. Nobody. Chapter 9, we know that, oh, you go back to chapter 9, and the 2300 is part of the 70-week prophecy, but they didn't get it. In fact, ironically or not so ironically, they didn't get it prior to 1798. Now I want you to go to Daniel chapter 12 with me. Daniel chapter 12, and notice what it says in verse 4. Daniel 12, verse 4 says, At that time, I'm, that's verse 1, sorry. Daniel 12, verse 4 says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book. Whose book? Daniel's book. You, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until when? Until the time of the end. Now, it doesn't describe the time of the end yet. It just says the time of the end. And you might be tempted to think, oh, the time of the end, that's when Jesus comes. I'm going to introduce another term to you, and then we'll flesh it out. But there's a difference between the time of the end and the end of time. The end of time is a point in time. But the time of the end is a period of time. You're going to see this in a minute, scripturally and prophetically. The period of time that ends with a point in time called the end of time. The time of the end ends with the end of time. Anyway, the time of the end is the period of last, what we call the last days. Now notice, the book of Daniel is going to be sealed up until the time of the end. It says, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Verse 5, then I, Daniel, looked, and there were two, there stood two others, one on this river bank and the other on that river bank. And one said to the man clothed in linen who is above the waters of the river, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Right? How long is this time, time, this, this time of the end? When is this time of the end? And he gives them an answer. It says, verse 7, and notice very carefully the, the imagery. We're going to come back to this. And the one said to the man clothed in linen, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Verse 7, then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he held up his what? His right hand and his left hand where? To heaven. And did what? Swore by him who lives forever. Okay, language is important because we're going to see this repeated in Revelation. That it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things will be finished. Although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till when? The time of the end. Now, this is what we put together from this. The time of the end begins at the end of the time, times, and half a time. The question is, how long is it going to be? It's going to be for a time, 
times and half a time. So after that period of time, we come into what the Bible calls the time of the end, and at that time, the time of the end, the book of Daniel is going to be unsealed. Okay? Now, from the study of that passage, how many of you know what the time times and half a time is? What's another way the Bible refers to it? 1,260 days, 42 months. It's all the same period that we call the Dark Ages, from 538 AD to 1798. Now, if you've never studied much prophecy before, I don't have time to go through all that, and you're going to be like, oh, get the book 1844 made simple, break it down for you. But this is, pro this is not just prophecy Seventh-day Adventists understand. People in the days, you, you have to understand that after the oppression in Europe, when people came to America, and the Bible was able to be studied and people were able to follow their conscience without fear of the stake or of being you know, persecuted in some other way and losing their lives. There was a great religious awakening. Um, and it was a, in the atmosphere of that awakening that people began to study the prophecies of Daniel. Now, as people were studying the prophecies of the Bible, how many of you know the name Sir Isaac Newton? Okay. How many of you know Isaac Newton was more of, a, pro, more of a, a student of prophecy than he was of science? Now, notice what uh, I have here by, there's our 1798 period of the Dark Ages. Newton wrote this in a uh, treatise on Revelation and the prophecies. He says, about the time of the end, now this is figuring from what we're just reading. He's basing it on what we just read in Daniel. He says, about the time of the end, a body of men will be raised up who will turn their attention to the prophecies. Why? Because at the time of the end, the prophecy would be unsealed, right? The book of Daniel would be open. So this is an understanding that people had. That what Daniel's saying is, at the time of the end, the book of Daniel is going to be open, and people's understanding is going to come uh, on the prophecies of Daniel. Now, I don't have time. You're going to keep, I'm going to keep saying that, but um, there's some great statements. Uh, I'm just going to give you different things you can read. I mean, why not? You've got it's camp meeting. You get stuff you read for the next year until next camp meeting, right? The book, if you don't have it, called The Great Second Advent Movement by J.N. Loughborough. The Great Second Advent Movement. You can get it on Amazon. It's been reprinted in a nice copy. I wish I had one in front of me. You can, oh, it's on the, you know, if you got the Ellen White app, yeah. it's on the app. If you like to read on an app, but if you want a book, you can get the book. Anyway, Loughborough shares some of the history on this. One of our, one of our, I say our, it wasn't an Adventist. There wasn't an Adventist yet, right? It was prior to 1844, the Great Advent Movement. And in one of the Advent papers, it was noted that they, they took note that there was all this confusion on the prophecy of Daniel, like the 70 weeks. Nobody saw the 70 weeks in the 2300 days prior to 1798. But when 1798, the year 1798 came, around the globe, people started all putting together that Daniel 8 and 9 went together and the prophecy of the 2300 days would come to its end in 1844. Now listen, folks. You didn't have internet. You didn't stream any media. You didn't have texting. You didn't have telegraph. How does this message get all the way around the globe where before nobody understood and all of a sudden everybody has an aha moment? The Holy Spirit, because the time had come for the book to be unsealed. And they connected the dots and found that the 2300 days and 70 weeks went together and the conclusion of that came to 1844. And the Bible says at the end of the 2300 days, the sanctuary would be cleansed. 
Now, there was a problem, a major problem, and the major problem was, it was, well, I was going to say it wasn't our problem, but it was our problem as a movement. And I say our, you, you understand that it wasn't, there was no Adventist church yet. We still hadn't, we grew out of this. But the common understanding of the day was that the sanctuary was a word that referred to the earth. How many of you have heard that the Adventists thought the sanctuary was the earth to be cleansed by fire? How many of you knew that was the common understanding in Christianity that day? See, we got people say, oh, those Adventists were crazy. Well, they were crazy for not studying it out. That's what they were crazy for. Notice what it says here, some statements from history. Um, this is in a Daystar Extra article by a man named O.R.L. Crozier. And after the disappointment, when they look back and they're trying to figure out what we did wrong, they came to the understanding. See, they thought that the sanctuary was the earth and therefore to be cleansed. Well, when's the earth going to be cleansed? Must be cleansed by fire when Jesus comes. So 1844 must be the day Jesus is coming. And just so we're clear on this, their opponents, none of their opponents called them on it because they didn't get it either. Right? The opponents didn't say, you guys are wrong, you got this all wrong, because the sanctuary is not the earth, it's something else. Nobody saw it. We're told in the writings of Ellen White that the Lord's hand covered the mistake because he wanted to test his professed people. So this is what Crozier says in the aftermath. He says, as we, notice it's 1846, but as we have been taught, so we have been so long and industriously, let me start again. But as we have been so long and industriously taught to look to the earth for the sanctuary, it may be proper to inquire by what? scriptural authority, and that's what we've been talking about here this week, have we been thus taught? I can find none. Ellen White says in the book Great Controversy, his, speaking of William Miller's error in this taking, understanding the earth as a sanctuary and the rest of the movement, his error resulted from accepting the popular view as to what constitutes the sanctuary. Just a teaching moment here. It's never safe to accept the view, because it's the popular view. Even in the Adventist church, just because all your friends think a certain way doesn't make it right. Okay? Maybe it is. I'm not saying it's not. But that's not how we come to understand truth. Again, in Great Controversy 409, Ellen White says, in common with the rest of the Christian world, Adventists, speaking of those in the, in the Advent movement, then held that the earth or some portion of it was the sanctuary. Now, it's interesting, as they went through the great disappointment, you know, we, today we get, I'm, I'm, I'll tell you why I'm sharing a lot of this, because one of the reasons we're losing the foundation, again, we're talking about culture, and it's not always worldly culture, sometimes it's Christian culture, and we get tired of being called names by other Christians who say, you guys are idiots to think that this whole, this whole 1844 is just a cover-up because your, your forerunners were a bunch of idiots. I don't know if you've heard this before. They may not say idiot. Some do. And so we get all timid and we're just like, what do we say to that? Listen. And they say, where'd they come up with this 1844? Doesn't even talk, it's not even talking about that. They're doing the math wrong and everything else. William Miller, again, was a prominent preacher. Now, there was a man in the day, a professor of Hebrew and Oriental literature, Right? Eastern, with the, familiar with the biblical languages and what have you. A biblical scholar in the New York City University named Dr. George Bush. No relation, as far as I know, okay, to the other Georges. Okay, now he was, again, he was a professor of Hebrew and Oriental Literature in New York University, and in a letter he addressed to William Miller 
and published in the Advent Review and the Signs of the Times Reporter in Boston, March 6 and 13, 1844, he made some statements. I've just taken a little piece of what he wrote to Miller, but I want you to notice what he said. Speaking of the conclusion of the 2300 days in 1844 A.D., he says the most respected biblical scholars all agree. He listed a bunch of names, but I just shortened it, okay, for sake of time. The most respected biblical scholars all agree that the leading periods mentioned by Daniel and John do actually expire around this age of the world, around 1844. And it would be a strange logic that would convince you, William Miller, of heresy for holding in effect the what? The same views which stand forth so prominent in the notices of these eminent divines. So Miller was not alone in his interpretation of the time periods ending when they did. Your results in this field of inquiry do not strike me so far out of the way as to affect any of the great interests of truth or duty. Your error, as I apprehend, lies in another direction. And I missed some punctuation there. Your chronology. You have entirely mistaken the nature of the events which are to occur when those periods have expired. In essence, Dr. Bush said, you're right on track with the conclusion of the, of the 2300 days in 1844. The problem is you think the Lord's going to come, and I think there's going to be a different event than that. Amen. And that's what we believe is Seventh-day Adventists. We don't subscribe to what Miller believed. The event was wrong. But people will say today, well, you guys, you know, that you guys grew out of a false movement, right? Was the Advent... Was the Adventist movement a deception? Was the Great Advent movement a deception? After all, if it was really God who was leading people, say, why did it end in failure? Let's be real clear on something. The Advent movement did not end in failure. The Advent movement ended in disappointment. There's a difference. It was a disappointment in the part of man. Everything God said he was going to do, he did. Everything that God predicted came to pass. Okay? And it's not the first time that we see this in Scripture. Let's consider another disappointment for just a moment. The triumphal entry. You remember the triumphal entry? Right? Here comes Jesus into Jerusalem, riding on the foal of a donkey, just like Zechariah had said he would. The prophecy foretold it, and here he's doing it. He's coming in. And how did the people respond? They were waving palm branches. They were singing Hosanna. They were shouting. They were throwing their garments on the road to usher him in. Why? Because he was coming to do what? Die on the cross. No, that's not what they thought. He was coming to establish his earthly kingdom. Was that what he was coming to do? Well, yes, but not the way they thought. He wasn't going to overthrow the Romans. He wasn't going to set them up as world rulers. Did he correct them? Why? They should have known, but they didn't know, and he didn't say, hey, guys, look, you got it all wrong here. I'm going to the cross. He had already said all that. He let them have their big parade. Why? And this is essential for us to understand. Now, they were all wrong. And I want to ask two questions. The disciples of Christ were wrong about the event, not the timing. Right? They had the timing right, but they had the event all wrong. So when Jesus died on the cross and those very same apostles went out preaching the gospel, do we say, well, I'm not going to listen to them. It's a false movement. Yes or no? No. I mean, everything God said came to pass like God said it would. I can't help it. The disciples didn't understand, but he had to bring the understanding. 
It's no different with the, than with the Advent movement. Now, the other question, why did the Lord let it come to that? How often were people crucified in Rome? All the time. Why would Jesus' crucifixion have stood out from the others? Now, we could have talked about the darkening of the sky and everything else, but that's not it. It was Passover season, so it was packed. What do you think it did in town when the triumphal entry happened? You think the local news media covered it? It was the biggest event on the scene. I mean, the Passover is already the big. You don't miss when a big convention comes into town. Okay, all the Jews are coming in for Passover, and then on top of all that, the triumphal entry, here comes Jesus of Nazareth. He's riding on a donkey, just like the prophecy of Zechariah said. Perhaps this is, and all eyes were on Christ. And God allowed it to happen. Jesus allowed it to happen because he wanted to draw the attention of the world to what was about to take place, the greatest event this earth had ever seen. And I want to tell you that the same reason exists for the great disappointment of 1844. The Lord Jesus was trying to draw the eyes of a world who had had him hidden from them when an earthly system took the truth and cast it to the ground, when an earthly system stood in the place of Jesus and had earthly incense and earthly sacrifices, earthly forgiveness and earthly priests, and Jesus wanted to take the eyes and put them back on his priestly ministry in heaven because until that happens, he can't prepare a people for his coming. Notice the statement. Great Controversy 488 tells us the sanctuary in heaven is what? The very what? Where is Jesus right now as we speak? He's in the sanctuary in heaven. Now let me just go off on a little bit of a rant here. There's a lot of talk today about Christ-centered preaching. Jesus only. We're focusing on Jesus, much of which says nothing about the heavenly sanctuary. Don't tell me you're focusing on Jesus when you're not even talking about where he is and what he's doing. I mean, if you want somebody to pull that over your eyes, go ahead, but it's not gonna, I'm not going to go for it. Jesus is in the heavenly sanctuary. And here in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we are not even hardly talking about it anymore. What is the work of the heavenly sanctuary? And I'm not saying you have to talk about the sanctuary, but let's get a little bit more practical here. What is he doing in the heavenly sanctuary? Well... Let's go to Revelation chapter 10. I'm looking at the clock and I want to fit in what we're looking at here. And it's the tie. I want to, I hate to get not quite to the end where we pull it together because we're not pulled together yet. Now, when you come to Revelation chapter 10, you're going to see something really interesting. As, as we've looked at what, we, we've, what we've already looked at, we're kind of building on it as we come to Revelation 10. Revelation chapter 10, John says this, verse 1. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a what? He had a little book open in his hand. He set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roared. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. 
Now notice verse 5 especially. The angel whom I saw standing upon the sea and on the land did what? Raised up his hand hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets. Do you see any similarities with this and something else we've read? You remember in Daniel chapter 12, and there was the man clothed in linen, and he had both hands raised to heaven, and the Bible says he swore what? By him who lives forever and ever, that there should be... No, 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 not then. He says that the book would be sealed for a time and times and half a time. Right? Now we come to Daniel, Revelation 10, and we see the same imagery. The angel doesn't have both hands raised to heaven, does he? Does he? He's got how many hands raised to heaven? Because in the other hand, he has a book, and the book is open. Now listen, folks, you can't read Daniel 12 and see the imagery and come to Revelation 12 and see the same imagery and be scratching your head about what the book is. In fact, the only time we have the Bible telling us a book is sealed is you go back there and you see the book being sealed up in Daniel 12 until the time of the end. So there's a time delay, and at the end of that period, the book's going to be open. Now we come into Revelation 10, we see the same imagery, only now a little book's open, and what does the message say, the voice say? No more delay. No more delay. The delay is over. The book that for so long has been closed is unsealed. Now let the message of Daniel go forward. Okay, that's that's what's happening in Revelation chapter 10. Revelation 10 is fast forwarding from Daniel 12 to show us the opening, the unsealing of the book of Daniel in 1798, when now the understanding of those prophecies started coming to the minds of that early Advent movement. Now notice what the angel goes on to say. He says that there's going to be this this, in the days when the seventh angel begins to sound, the mystery of God would be finished. Now follow along here. Verse 8 says, And the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Now that's a little bit confusing in our language just because it got, has it backwards, but... When you eat something, does it go to the stomach first or the mouth first? In the mouth, how's it going to be? Sweet. But in the stomach, it's going to turn bitter. Now, notice, when he eats this book that the angel has open, which we can see is the book of Daniel that was sealed up, when he eats this book, and incidentally, again, without taking, I'd like to take more time, but the idea of the eating of the book, and we see images of this elsewhere in Scripture, You're ingesting it. You're making it a part of your life. It's an experience. And when the experience of this open book, these prophecies of Daniel, come into John's mouth, at first they're very sweet. But they make him sick. Okay? Now follow along. Now this is what the angel tells him. 
Take and eat it. It'll make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my stomach, in my mouth. But after I had eaten it, or when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. Now notice verse 11. And he said to me, you must prophesy. Now, if you've got to prophesy again, what did he do before? You've got to prophesy again to many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So the picture is one of this. The book of Daniel is opened. John eats the book. He, 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 he ingests, he, he embraces the prophecies of Daniel that pointed forward to the coming work of the Messiah. It was sweet because they thought Jesus was coming, but it turned bitter when he didn't come. When they ate the book, they began to prophesy. They were preaching this message, which is why he's told you've got to prophesy again. And brothers and sisters, listen to me. You can't go anywhere else in history and find a fulfillment outside of the Advent movement to Revelation 10. I mean, ask yourself, so let's see, Revelation 10, we see the book that was sealed up was Daniel. So he's got it open in his hand. Where else might we turn? Let's say uh, the Adventists have it wrong. Where else are we going to turn to find a body of people who have taken the prophecies of Daniel, they've embraced them, they've preached them, it was a sweet experience that turned bitter, and then they had to go and preach the same message again. Nowhere. This is the identity. The Advent, listen, you have not followed cunningly devised fables to be here. This is a movement of prophecy outlined in Scripture. You're not an Adventist by accident. Amen. And the devil is working so hard to get Seventh-day Adventists ashamed of their faith because we're the only people that can preach this message. Amen. So God raised up this movement. And let's, let's think about something else here in our remaining moments. What was it that the little horn did again? Back in Daniel 8. He cast down the place of Christ's sanctuary, right? Put an earthly sanctuary, earthly priesthood, etc. in its place. Cast it down the truth. What are some examples of the truth that was cast down in the dark ages? Okay. Sabbath, death, hell, right? Uh, the sanctuary ministry of Christ, right? I mean, we could just go, right? All this stuff was the truth. The law of God is done away with, right? Cast down. There's, there's, you, and we could go on, right? So listen. The question was asked in Daniel, how long? How long is he going to get away with it? Unto 2,300 days. Now we get, I don't want to say tripped up necessarily, but we miss some of this. Sometimes under 2,300 days. Now at the end of that 2,300 days, something's going to happen. Something's going to begin called the cleansing of the sanctuary. Now it doesn't tell us how long it's going to last. We're still in that time frame, but there's something going to begin at the end of the 2300 days, the cleansing of the sanctuary, but something else is happening at the end of the 2300 days that we often stop thinking, we don't even think about. Okay? The truth is cast down, all those things we talked about, until, you know, if I told you the truth is cast down until next Monday, what do you expect is going to happen next Monday? Something's going to happen to what? To start bringing back the truth. If I tell you the truth is going to be cast down until 1844, then what are you expecting to have happen in 1844? Something's going to happen to start bringing the truth back. 
what do we see in history? What alone do we see in history that fulfills it? The rise of the Adventist church. That is, we, we're a movement of prophecy in 1844. God rose up this church in 1844, December of 1844. Ellen White had her first vision, restoring the gift of prophecy. I mean, I could do a whole thing on that. And say, oh, I don't know about Ellen White. I don't know about Look, folks, we are here right on time as God said we would be. Amen. 1844, and we showed up. And here's the Advent movement to proclaim all of these truths that were buried up in the dark ages by men's traditions and superstitions and errors. And the Lord said this is going to be proclaimed while Jesus is cleansing the sanctuary. Now let's ask this. What was the priest doing in the sanctuary? I don't know what I can do in the next seven minutes. When the sanctuary was being cleansed, now you go back and look. Well, we can look in Leviticus real quick and figure out the cleansing of the sanctuary, right? Leviticus chapter 16, just go there real quick. Leviticus 16. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus 16 is the uh, Day of Atonement chapter. That was what was the, the cleansing of the sanctuary was, was referred to, the Day of Atonement. And I want you to notice that uh, verse, verse 30. Start in verse 30. Re, uh, Leviticus 16, verse 30. Speaking about the Day of Atonement, the day of the cleansing of the sanctuary, it says, On that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Now, there's more that could be said, but just the point is that the cleansing of the sanctuary was Christ cleansing his people from their sins because, listen, saints, he's coming again in power and great glory. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12 that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. If we're going to actually live to see Jesus come in all his glory, we're going to have to be purified and to be able to do it. That's what John means in 1 John 3 when he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. We do not know yet what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we're going to see him as he is. You can't see him as he is if you're not like him. Well, if Jesus were going to cleanse his people from their sins, how is he going to cleanse us from sin and error when all we know is error? So he had to raise up a movement on the earth to preach the truth and the truth sanctifies people. And as the truth is sanctifying people on the earth, now in heaven, he can purify and cleanse his people to prepare them and ready them for his coming. Are you following that? The Bible says, turn to another passage here, in Ephesians chapter 6. I'm really, really cutting this short, but I think you can get the general gist of it. Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians 6.19. Ephesians 6 and look at verse 19. Now the Bible said there in Revelation that in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel that would begin to sound in, when that bitter book was open or the, the sealed book was open and what have you. It says the mystery of God would be finished. Notice what it says here. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the what? The mystery of the gospel. Now, the Bible says in uh, the book of Colossians that the mystery 
of godliness is Christ in you, the hope of glory. How many of you read this before? Good, because I don't have time to look it all up. But you get So the idea of the mystery being finished, if the mystery is the work of the gospel, not the preaching of the gospel, but the gospel itself, the work of the gospel and the life, if the Bible's saying that that's going to be finished, what does that mean? What does it mean, the work of the gospel? Listen, you think Jesus is just going to be a priest for eternity now? Just cleansing sin, cleansing sin, cleansing sin, and really never getting the job done? What the Bible's telling us in Revelation 10 is that when that book was opened and foretold, it, what it was doing is foretelling the work of Christ to go into that last phase of ministry in the sanctuary. You know what that last phase is for? It's to prepare the world for a second coming. And in that second apartment, His work is cleansing His people from their sin. When we're going over this week, we're talking about the objective-only gospel. We're not talking about sanctification and lifestyle. The whole point is, the devil's purpose for all that is to keep us from a sanctifying experience that will prepare us for the second coming. The reason he's hidden Christ from view is because he knows that if we're just in a, well, I just believe in Jesus, and that's how it's going to have to be. I'm not going to overcome my sin or anything like that. We're not going to be ready for the day of his coming. Our characters won't be fit for his coming. That's his whole purpose. This message is telling us that heaven is opened and Jesus has entered in there and he's finishing the mystery of the gospel and a time is coming very soon when he's going to say it is done. That's what it says in the book of Revelation. We have it is finished at the cross, but he's not done yet because in heaven he says a little bit later it's done and then there are thunderings and earthquakes and he steps out of that temple and he puts on the garments of vengeance. So Christ has entered to complete his atonement in the sanctuary above to prepare the world for his coming. I want to share with you just a couple other things here. I'm skipping some really good stuff. Okay. The intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is what? as essential to the plan of salvation, as was his... This is why M.L. Andreasen had the problem. I told you the other day, his, they took his credentials away for holding to this. Questions on doctrine kind of watered down the idea of atonement. Uh, Andreasen said, we can't say the atonement is completed. It takes the heart out of our message. Yes, we believe the sacrifice, that part of the atonement is completed. But Jesus, this part in the sanctuary is just as important. They removed his credentials, and then after he died, they gave him back. And to this day, listen, saints, there, there, are, there are three books that have just come out too clearly I have in my possession. I just picked up from our ABC, one from our seminary, that is battling this very idea. Incidentally, what we're talking about, the cleansing of the sanctuary, I'm going to finish with a statement by a man named A.T. Jones. You know that name, A.T. Jones? A.T. Jones is a man who... Ellen White says, brought a message to this church from God on righteousness by faith. She didn't endorse his every last word, but she endorsed the message of Jones. She endorsed the message of Wagner. She endorsed the concept I'm going to share with you, but I'm telling you it's being battled today on this ground. It's all coming down to being ready for the coming of Christ. You'll see what I mean in just a minute. Now, she continues in this statement in Great Controversy, by his death, he what? He began that work, which after his resurrection, he ascended to... Complete in heaven. Look, that first perfectly fits the type in the sanctuary. Right? No priest ever came in, killed an animal at the burnt altar, and then went home. That was the beginning of the service. That's just connecting the two. That's all she's to type and anti-type. Now here's a statement by Jones on the finishing of the mystery. 
And incidentally, Jones isn't presenting something new here when he presented this in 1898. This is what Seventh-day Adventists believed in 1898. It wasn't a surprise. Nobody said, oh, that's heresy. Jones, how could you preach that? In 1898, it was understood among Seventh-day Adventists because we understood. Listen, let me just ask it this way before I read it. If the cleansing of the sanctuary is not the cleansing of God's people from all their sins, what is it? If Jesus was done with everything on the cross, why on earth are we still here? It makes zero sense. The reason we're here, very clearly stated in inspiration, is that Jesus is preparing his people for that coming. Jones says this in this Review and Herod article, as he was the editor, this was his editorial. The finishing of the mystery of God, then, is the finishing of the work of Christ, where? In you, Christ, in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery. According to the Apostle Paul in Colossians, that's Colossians 1, 27. The finishing of the work of Christ in you is the bringing of you to perfection in Christ Jesus. And the bringing of you to perfection in Christ Jesus is by the power of the Holy Spirit, according to the working whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself. Is Jesus able to do that? I, I think that he is. I believe that he is. The seventh angel, the seventh angel began to sound in 1844 has been sounding ever since, and still continues to sound. And as he has now been sounding 54 years with the mystery of God, the work of Christ in you, not yet finished, this shows that his work has been, what? Delayed. But on the Lord's part, there is never any delay. The delay, or this delay, is altogether on the part of his people. The Lord's people have hesitated and delayed to surrender themselves fully to be worked by the Holy Spirit into the complete image of the Lord Jesus. And that's the devil's whole purpose in all this. Many have delayed to him, to have him even begin the mystery of God, the work of Christ in them, much less finish it. And now, he says, is the time. Amen. And if now was the time in 1898, brothers and sisters... In 2018, is it not time? We are in the days when the mystery of God will be finished, which means that we are in the days when God will prepare His people for translation by bringing us to perfection according to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Bless the Lord. The only hindrance He has is us. And as I mentioned, I think, in one of the talks the other day, what man does not believe, God cannot achieve. Isn't it time we believe the Lord Jesus will do what He's intended with us, what He's promised? Isn't it time for us to realize that we are the people God's called Amen. with a unique message at a unique time in this earth's history to give to the world and that we stop being ashamed of being Seventh-day Adventists? Amen. Oh, brothers and sisters, the Lord needs His church to arise. You want to say, here I am, Lord, send me. Let's pray. Father in heaven. Father, we've covered a lot in a little time, and I wish there was... There were, we're just so far behind, Lord. We don't study these things anymore, and we're, we're so used to evangelical sermons that could be heard in any denominational pulpit. We've, we've almost lost our message. Forgive us, God, and help us to recapture... Uh, the, the, this, the sense of importance of this message you've given us to prepare the world to be ready when Jesus comes. There's no reason that, 
one person not be ready at that time, but the devil's working with all of his energy. Oh, Father, help us not to take his side. I just pray that you will help us to believe you under the saving of the soul. Now bless us, Lord, through the remainder of this day. I pray your Holy Spirit will continue to lead us and prompt us and transform us into your image. Lord, help us. May the mystery of God be finished in us, we ask in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.